As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Now, an artwork inspired by the death of someone much loved that you lost during COVID. It would be a labor of love, I think, for anybody who set out to do it. And it was just that for Dr. Edith O'Regan. Um, Edith, my condolences on the loss of your mom. Um, she was the 604th person in Cork to die of COVID. When did she pass away? Morning. Hi, good morning. Um, so she passed away in April of this year. Um, so, yeah. So, um, but I suppose, you know, there's 603 other families before then that, you know, had the same or a similar experience, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so I suppose it's, um, I suppose it, you know, it's a thing that all children, well, hopefully, I mean, it's supposed to, it's the way it's supposed to be, I suppose, you know, our parents age and, and, you know, hopefully go before we do. Um, but I suppose for a lot of families in Cork, COVID maybe, you know, took some of our relatives a bit earlier. So, yeah. 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 Was you a doctor yourself, um, Edith, a medical doctor, so you were working on the front line throughout it all? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose not. I suppose frontline, I suppose, varies. Um, I work in community medicine normally, so I work mostly in child development. I work in St. Mary's and Grona Broher. Um, and when COVID hit, we were all redeployed to public health. Um, so I suppose most of my work would have been not so much clinical. Now we did do, um, we did support the vaccination program in the nursing homes later on. And um, so I suppose that was, you know, the full gear and, in and, and, you know, supporting the nurses who were vaccinating. But, um, for the first round of it, I suppose we were on the phones doing the complex contact tracing. So that would mean where there were complex outbreaks in maybe residential settings or nursing homes or complex community settings um so again i suppose very very 
distressed, bereaved families, um, you know, trying to get information from them at a time when everybody was very unsure of what was happening and how things were going to go. So, yeah, you know, um, very different to what my day-to-day job would have been. But yeah. again, I suppose compared to some of my colleagues who might have been 12 or 14 hours in full PPE gear inside in COVID wards, you know, it... It was, uh, I suppose, an easier station, for want of a better word, mm. um, but still very challenging and very necessary work. You know, the public health department, yeah. I think, you know, they had to really, um, you know, completely change yeah. the way they worked and the way, you know, and it was just such a complete disruption for everybody, you know, and it it, it was very... Um, I suppose it was very, you know, it sounds very strange to say that, you know, positive things come out of such a difficult time, but Mm. it was really heartening to see how how well people pulled together, what goodwill there was, you know, the camaraderie of it, you know, and how quickly really, I suppose there's so many unsung heroes from it, you know, from such a difficult time, but, um, and it was very, you know, I suppose for a lot of people in those, you know, particularly in the first lockdown, um, you know, people were stuck at home, you know, whereas at least I, you know, I, me and my colleagues we were able to go out to work and feel like we were making a difference and we were helping and we were doing valuable work, you know, so there was a comfort in that too, you know. I remember the, the first few months and people genuinely very frightened but the way the community mm. pulled together I think as yeah. an Irishman as a Corkman I never felt yeah. more proud of my fellow Cork people Absolutely it was just at a time when and again I suppose I you know I I qualified from UCC in 1998 and I suppose I worked in children's medicine and I worked in general practice and I suppose I you know over the years you remember you know there were always times or families or you know patients that you remember or whatever but I think you know particularly families who were bereaved in that early period um you know how difficult it was for them and I I you know I don't think I'll ever forget how struck I was by how kind those families were and how how well they you know they didn't you know we were ringing them they weren't you know it would have been so easy for people to be you know aggressive on the phone or you know we were you know and people were so kind and really wanted to help and do the best for their community even in the midst of their own grief and distress you know I I agree I think it really showed I suppose you know that the the good in people you know it really did it was very heartening you know how good people were and how kind they were and how considerate they were of others you know at great cost to themselves at times you know yeah did mum try to talk you out of medicine as a career yeah, both of them did actually, which I suppose isn't what you'd expect. Um, I I got a notion when I was about fifteen, I think fourteen or fifteen, that I wanted to do medicine, and I think they felt it would be a very, in hindsight, you know, I, I have three girls of my own now and I completely see where they're coming from. But at 16, sure, you don't want to be told anything like. Um, so I think they felt it would be a hard life. I think they felt the hours and the responsibility and, you know, the on-call and all that, particularly in the early years, I think they felt it would be a hard life. And to be fair, I've always been rather fond of my bed. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were worried about how well I'd cope with, you know, being up all night and doing. And, you know, certainly when I started as an intern, like 
I, wor- I worked in the Mercy and in the South Infirmary. Lovely, fabulous hospitals to work in. But sure, the hours were insane, you know. Yeah. But like everything else, you just get on with it and you cope and it's what everyone is doing and it's what you know and sure, yeah. it's also exciting at the start, you know. But yeah, I think I think they were coming from a good place, to be fair. Yeah. Um, but I think, um, you know, yeah, saying to your 16-year-old, you know, and uh, again, I can see where my dad was coming from in that, you know, again, in those days, things like maternity leave and all those things they were not great Mm. for women in medicine you know Mm. particularly in hospital medicine um you know it has improved since um but i think i can kind of see where he was coming from now um but again at the time (laughs) that's not (laughs) (laughs) at 16 our children are not designed to see where we're coming from no, not at all. And they're certainly not designed to be told anything no, either. No, you know, you, no, not no. at all. Like, that's just not how God, it works. No, but, no. Um, yeah, and, no. And no. how did, where did art come from? Because if, if you're going to go into medicine, yeah. you haven't got much time on your hands. So where did art come no. from? No. I suppose I've always made things. Um, I say this all the time. I think for some of us, making is almost a compulsion. I've always had the need to make things. So I suppose in my in my life growing up, the kind of things that were around were textile. All the women in my life knitted or sewed or embroidered. Um, we made cakes and we baked. So I suppose they were the natural places that I ended up. And particularly in textile, I always knitted and sewed and embroidered. Um, you know, everybody I knew that had a baby got a baby blanket. You know, I always did that. And I suppose there's a lot of artists in my family on both sides. Um, but... Like, I never really felt it was something that I could do as a career. You know, I never felt that it was something that I would um, do as a job, I suppose. I kind of felt like I wanted medicine. And then in my later life, I did a textile course in the Crawford, um, just an evening class. I did it over a couple of years. And I suppose it's the first time I started making non-functional objects you know things that were just for the sake of making them they weren't a hat or a scarf or you know something that had a use and I made a piece for an exhibition there and I wanted to put a painted background behind it and I opened a tube of paint and I put it on the canvas and I was lost like that was it I was just that was me I was done (laughs) I was completely hooked yeah Yeah. hooked Um, and it just went from there Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. So talk to me about the, the piece you've done called Final Breaths. It's, it's a complex piece. There's a lot to it. Yeah, um, I suppose with this work, I suppose I wanted to make work that was about COVID, but I didn't want to make work that was inherently, it sounds very odd not to make work that's inherently kind of very obviously sad or grief stricken. I wanted to make work that looked very um, light and airy and, you know, I suppose, but anyway, the work itself, it's got 22 hand-blown glass baubles really mm. um, and the volume of each one contains the size of it contains the volume of carbon dioxide in a single human breath Ooh. so we make yeah so we make carbon dioxide when we breathe yeah. living things make co2 so and then inside each one is a tiny amount of gold thread which is the amount of gold that's in a human body now i, I um, read that in in my notes and I, obviously i yeah. understand the carbon dioxide bit and the fact that so if you take each one of these little glass baubles or yeah. Yeah, that they have a, a certain amount in them and that would be the amount of carbon dioxide but you say there's gold permanently in the body yeah, we contain a certain amount of dissolved gold in our bodies. Tiny amount, 0. 0.02 of a milligram or something. It's a tiny amount, right. but we do. And I suppose I was very struck by the idea that, I suppose, for COVID and breath, you know, at some point, like, you know, even with mum, you know, your her breaths became more and more laboured, you know, and at some point there is the last one. So I suppose it was an attempt to kind of capture that sense of a last breath for each of, so there's 22 for each of the healthcare workers that passed away from COVID in Ireland up to the date my mum passed away. You know, I, I hope there haven't been any more since, but I haven't checked the figures. But yeah. um, I suppose it was an attempt to kind of commemorate that in a way. You know, I think... But in a very, I suppose I wanted to do it in quite a quiet, dignified way. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to, you know, it's 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 people's personal grief. And I suppose grief is such an unusual thing, you know, like the idea of this little glass ball. It's like a space that the person held in the world, but they don't, they're gone, but their space yes. is still there. I don't yes. know if you, that's my experience no, of I grief. Do. I it's get like, that, because you talked about, yeah. you talked about your mom's last breath. And it's almost yeah. like... And I think people will recognise very much with this, Edith, that they're, mm. they're, the carbon dioxide contained is the amount exhaled in the typical human breath. So therein, yeah. you may perceive to be your mum's last breath, held yeah, well, preciously in this little bulb. It's represented as that. Now, yes. they're not sealed, so it doesn't contain actual carbon dioxide. I wasn't organised enough to do that. But it is that idea that that's the last little okay. bit of space, I suppose, that they held in the world, you know, yes, this last thing. exhale. Precious, yeah. precious. And it's, it's on display. Where is it on display? So it's in um, the Lord Mayor's Pavilion in Fitzgerald's Park. And it's there. You're going to ask me the dates now. It's there until the start of October. Until this weekend, I think. I think yeah. Yeah, and I think it's open Tuesday to Sunday. Okay. I should have been organised now and That's had dates. Right. I'm can, sorry. I think it's Tuesday to Sunday. Yeah. Tell me, lastly, about Mum. Um, she was a remarkable kind of a person. Um, born in a huge family in West Limerick. Um, you know, a tiny cottage on an acre. Uh, very bright. Um, did her leaving cert. Um, went to Mary I. Worked as a primary school teacher and then a principal. 
Mm. So she was a principal in a tiny school um, in a place called Park, which is kind of on the cork Waterford border outside Yall. Uh, drove out to school every day in her tiny little mini um, and, you know, worked there for years. Um, yeah, and a very tiny little woman um, with this incredible intellect, loved her books and loved anything intellectual, loved crosswords, loved her. We had... Um, we always had big, massive, hairy Airedale Terriers who were like the son she never had. Like, there was just myself and my sister. Loved her dogs, loved her cigarettes, loved her sweet tea. Um, and then at 57, had a brain tumour, um, had surgery to remove it, and really never fully recovered. So she was in a nursing home for years then after that. No, she still was, you know, she still was able to have a conversation and laugh and joke. Mm but really was less than she had been, you know, couldn't, yeah. her short-term memory was affected. So I suppose um, her, I suppose her life was maybe not as, you know, she planned on, you know, there were, she just retired actually and had, um, they'd moved to a little cottage over by the sea in Ring near Dungarvan yeah. where she was as happy out, but, you know, these yeah, things don't always bit, work out she, as you plan, you know. She felt a bit robbed then, did she? <laughs> You know, she actually, it was remarkable how she kind of took it in her stride. Um, she just kind of, I suppose, got the good where she was. Um, you know, she settled into the nursing, but she was at home for five years and then she fell and broke her ankle and wasn't mobile. So she went into the nursing home after that. But um, she just kind of took it in her stride. It was kind of her way. Um, she just kind of accepted where she was and she got the good of it. And she was in um, the nursing home in Yall and the staff there were they became her other family really yeah. like they were so good to her she was their longest resident um, they were devastated when she passed away um, but like she just I suppose it was a good example of you know live your life while you have it you know yeah. don't wait for you know retirement or whatever all these great plans you know you never know what's going to happen but also find the good where you are you know she really did like that was her reality and she could have been very bitter and angry about it but she just kind of she got gone on with it. it and got the good yeah she did really you know there's a life lesson in in that and people like her for all of us my condolences again on you lost Thank Edith you. and uh, the work is open until Saturday the 1st of October at the Lord Mayor's Pavilion in Fitzgerald's Park. It's part of an exhibition called Braid. Uh, you'll find that work and others besides. Thank you very much, Dr. Edith O'Regan, who is a, a, a medical doctor with St. Mary's Primary Care Centre, but also an artist at Sample Studios. Courts 96 FM.